Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it was funny yesterday morning, uh, I was talking to someone at a coffee morning and they were asking what I was going to be speaking on. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm speaking on God's will. And their witty retort was, was it God's will that you speak on God's will? Uh, and I sincerely hope so, because I didn't really want to change my whole thing last night. Um, and I, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the will of God. Maybe it's in the context of a career change or a new relationship or what to study at school or university or even where to do that. Maybe it's even how to spend your free time over the summer, if you have any. See, I think the will of God is, is something that is talked about a lot, and I know that I've had lots of conversations about it. But even though I've had lots of conversations about it, I'm not, I don't think I'm any clearer on what it is or how to find it, which is sometimes the language we use. For example, have, have you ever known two people or maybe two groups of people who come to totally different conclusions about something, but both cite the will of God as the reason for their assurance? Or, or, or maybe you know someone who's going through a really tough situation and you think you know what they should do, but they say very definitely, very clearly, and with all conviction, no, God is leading me this way. Well, how does that happen? I mean, can, can God give conflicting advice to different people? Or has one person heard God more than the other? How does that actually work? Or maybe you've experienced God's will being used for the reason for what looks like, from your point of view, simple inactivity. So someone says that they are waiting for definite direction, definite clarity from God before they make a decision. But actually, a decision just needs to be made. Maybe it's a difficult decision, and that's why some of us, I know I have, have said, oh, God hasn't made that clear, so I'll just ignore that for now. I don't know how you think of and what you think of when you think of the will of God. And maybe you can think of other scenarios involving relationships or work situations or ministry opportunities or study plans, but whatever it is, I think that they all boil down to the same basic questions. Is God interested in the nitty-gritty details of our life, or is he only interested in the big-picture headlines of our life? What's the balance between waiting for God's direction and using his God-given decision-making ability that he's given to me. If a situation is uncomfortable, is God testing my endurance, or is he suggesting that I make a change? These are, these are big questions, and they're questions that I've wrestled through uh, for a little while at, at different times in, in life. And perhaps helpfully, perhaps foolishly, to be honest, uh, I want to try to explore this topic with you this morning. And um, hopefully we can try to figure out a little bit and clarify a little on what we think about when we think about God's will. Now, it's very important that I say that I am not claiming to have figured this out. I am not claiming at 30 years old to understand the will of God. And the time that we have this morning, we will only scratch the surface on what is a very, very deep topic. And I want to focus, for, this, for the time we have this morning, I want to focus on what does God's will mean for our lives. So that's a warning that I'm not going to talk about how do we see God's will in natural disasters when things go wrong, when I don't understand, when things seem to conflict. I'm afraid I'm not going to deal with that. David's back next week, you can ask him. Um, in saying that, though, I do think this is an important topic for us to discuss. As a group of individuals wanting to try to seek to live a godly life in our everyday and also, as we've been hearing this morning, as a church family, as we make exciting decisions about what's next for us, 
it's important to think about what is God's will in that. What does that mean? And as we begin, let me say that, that a lot of my thoughts, and this has been in my head for the last few months, and it's been stirring because I've read this book recently, I've read it twice actually, called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. And I'm going to lean fairly heavily on some of his thinking through his book and also then through different portions of scripture as we go through this morning. Most of the time we'll spend in and around the Gospel of Matthew, but we'll get there in a minute. Unfortunately, we've got a bit of groundwork to do before we get there. And the first thing that I think we need to try to figure out is what do we mean even? What do we think scripture says? And how do we think scripture understands the will of God? And I think there are two main ways in Scripture that we see the will of God being talked about. And so we have God's will, the big picture, but I think we break that down. And the first one is God's sovereign will. And this is what Kevin DeYoung calls God's will of decree, his sovereign will. What God wills, will happen. God's will, his sovereign will, in control of the world, Nothing can stop that. That will take place. That will happen. And we see this in the big picture universe-sized uh, uh, focus in Ephesians 1.11, where we read, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. This is the big picture on the universe scale. He works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. God's sovereign will will happen. But we also see this sovereignty of God in the intricacies of life as well. As Jesus is speaking to some followers in Matthew 10, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. See, God is interested in the intricate detail. He is in control of the intricate detail. See, God's sovereign will his will of decree will happen. It is being worked out and nothing can stop it. Why? Because it's God's decree. And who can stop God? So that's the first way we see God's will being talked about in Scripture. His will of decree, his sovereign will. The second is what De Young calls God's will of desire. So we have his will of decree and his will of desire. And this is how Kevin De Young differentiates between the two. He says, if God's will is how things are, then, sorry, his will of decree is how things are, then his will of desire is how things ought to be. So his will as decree is how things are, his will as desire is how things ought to be. In other words, God's will of desire is his explanation of how his followers should live. Now that sometimes means that we don't. And so God's will of decree always happens, it will come to pass, but God's will of desire might not. And we see this again looking at Jesus from Matthew 7, when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The simple conclusion we can draw there is some do the will of the Father, but some do not do the will of the Father. That is his will of desire. God has laid out the design of how we should live, but he has given us the freedom to decide whether we do or not. You can see how this gets complicated very quickly. And so we do need to wrestle. We do need to continue this conversation. We're not going to finish this topic this morning, but I just want to spark something. And maybe I've sparked something already because maybe within 
these two categories of the will of desire and the will of decree, you've actually seen that some of the difficulties that you struggle with, some of the dilemmas that you face, actually haven't neatly fitted into either one of those categories. So where you study, where you live, dare I say, and open a can of worms, who you marry, maybe that's not under God's will of decree or his will of desire. And the reason why I think we struggle so much with those kind of topics is because they are not moral topics. They are not right or wrong. They are not sinful or blessed. Whether you study in Belfast or Edinburgh, that's not necessarily a godly decision. Some of us may think there's a more godly city, but it's not within God's will of decree or his will of desire. So how do we manage that? How do we cope with that? How do we find God's guidance in decisions like that? And this is where I think we wish that there was a third way to talk about God's will. And that is his will of direction. I think we long for a detailed plan of how life will pan out. And so we know God's will of decree. We understand his will of desire, but we really want his will of direction, his absolute guidance for the next step. And I think although this might not be the topic in scripture that's talked about most in relation to God's will, I certainly know in my experience, this is the topic that I talk about most in relation to God's will for my life. And so we want God to show us the next step. We want God to guide us. We want to be in close communion with him. So we want him to show the next step so that we are always on track with him. The problem with that kind of thinking is that I think it leads us to view God's will like a tightrope, that we have to walk balanced perfectly for fear that a false move might send us off. We might fall out of God's will. We might lose the blessing that God has before us. And, and I'm just, as I've reflected, I'm just not sure that that's right. Because I don't understand how that level of fear and tension and anxiety of making sure that I'm on the tightrope, I don't know how that marries up with Jesus's call that we would have life and life to the full and life abundantly. That sounds like fear to me, not freedom. Surely that kind of thinking would lead us to such a preoccupation with the future that we would lose the sense of joy of walking with God in today. Is it possible, should I say, that that would lead to such a preoccupation with the future that we would lose the joy of walking with God in today? And this is sometimes where I think we find ourselves stuck when we come to the will of God. I know I have spent countless hours deliberating over decisions, weighing up the pros and the cons, searching for what I think God has in mind for this specific scenario that I'm in. And please hear me, I'm not saying that we should make our decisions without some kind of godly wisdom. We'll get there in a minute. But maybe we've missed the point slightly. See, maybe we should be spending less time and less energy and less focus in such anxious preoccupation about the future and more time and more energy and more focus on seeing the kingdom of God displayed before us in the present. So less time, energy and focus in anxious preoccupation about the future and more time, energy and focus on seeing the kingdom of God worked out in front of our faces. Some of you may be relieved to know that we're finally gonna turn to Matthew chapter six. And it's found on page 971 of the Pew Bibles, if you haven't brought one with you. 
And we're going to join uh, a section of, of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus has been talking for quite some time. We're going to jump in about two-thirds of the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And so far, Jesus has been giving lots of practical application of what it means to follow him. And we're going to join this discussion at verse 26. And this is often our practice at Windsor, but I'd love it if you're able to, to stand for the public reading of God's Word. So we're going to start at verse 25 and work our way through to the end of the chapter. And this is Jesus speaking to the crowd. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Take your seat for me there, folks. As we've jumped in to this section of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus talking about worry. And it's the type of worry that I've alluded to already, that worry about the details of the future. And Jesus explains that that kind of worry is is pointless. Um, We are not in control, so why should we worry? And Jesus also explains that not only is that type of worry pointless, it can actually distract us from what is really important. And what is really important is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, Jesus isn't dismissive of the things that worry us. It's really important that we recognize that. We see actually in verse 32, Jesus says, your father knows that you need them. See, the Father knows the types of things that could preoccupy us. He knows that we have a tendency to worry about things. He knows that we like to have a plan and want to feel in control. But Jesus so rightly points out we are not in control. So what good does worry do? See, as we search for God's will of direction in the details of life, as significant as those details may be, We need to recognize that God's will for our life is bigger than that one decision. In Jesus' words, we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's God's will for us. And I think I'm coming to the conclusion that what this shows is that maybe God is more interested in what my decisions show about who I am and what I value than he is about the outcome of the decision. He's more interested in who I am and what it shows about my heart's value than he is in the outcome of the decision. We're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But but what does that mean? Well, let's be clear that these are not two separate things. Jesus said you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so if we're to seek them both first, they're obviously interconnected. And of course they are, that makes sense actually. If God's, where God's kingdom is evident, his righteousness is present. Where his righteousness is evident, his kingdom is going to be there. And so the two are interconnected. 
And surely we see these two things modeled for us most clearly in the life of Jesus. As he walked the earth and lived out God's kingdom values, as he displayed God's righteousness. So maybe seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness starts with looking and learning from Jesus. Another passage which speaks of God's will, and maybe you'll think that I should have started here when I quote it, is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, and it very simply states, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Let's close in prayer. It sounds simple, doesn't it? That's a neat little package. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. Okay, great, brilliant. We need to figure out what that means too. Being sanctified means to be made holy. That's another way of saying because Jesus was perfectly holy, being sanctified means being made holy. That means being made more like Jesus. So it seems that both of these passages that I think speak to us of God's will, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, being sanctified, being made holy, they're converging on one point, and that one point is God's will for our life is to become more like Jesus. That's what it means to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what it means to be sanctified. We become more like Jesus. We learn from him and we imitate his example. De Young in his book puts it this way. God's will for your life is this. Be holy like Jesus by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Now I think that gives us the big picture, the headline answer for what it means to understand the will of God for our life. But how does that help us when we seek to, and we desire to make godly decisions about what job to take, where to live, where to study, what relationships to pursue? Can we find the details of those questions in the banner of the will of God? Controversially, maybe we can't. You see, I, I don't believe God is the perfect plan for your life in his hand but he's hiding it behind his back, like some kind of taunting bully who just stole your pencil case and won't tell you where it is. That doesn't sound like the nature of a loving heavenly father to me. See, in the end, if our heart's desire is to become more like Jesus, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then maybe some decisions are ours to make. De Young in his book doesn't pull any punches and he says, if you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. Of course, that doesn't mean that God leaves us stranded in an ocean of decisions without any navigational system. The last thing I want you to do is leave here with the wrong idea that God doesn't care about those decisions. He cares. He understands the dilemmas and the stresses that we go through. And so he has provided ways to guide us, tools of the trade to help us learn what it means to walk wisely, as our young people have been learning. The Bible calls this wisdom, and I think there are three simple tools of the trade that God has given us to help us figure out how we make those decisions in our own life. And firstly, and most importantly, he's given us scripture. Now, of course, not every decision that we make will be dealt with explicitly in Scripture. But the principles by, by which we should filter everything are in there. That is where we find the principles. So, for example, that job opportunity that causes you to compromise your integrity doesn't sound like God's will. That relationship that you just know in your heart is unhelpful to pursue 
maybe that's not the way to go. See, the principles provide a filter. And as Paul directs Timothy in the second letter, in 2 Timothy 3, 16, he says, all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, if God's will is that we become more like Jesus, his word is the way in which we are trained in righteousness. So the principles in scripture provide a filter. But of course, to know the principles, we have to know God's word. Secondly, as we seek to make wise choices that will help us become more like Jesus, we have the power of prayer. Now, this might be tricky because perhaps like me, you often pray that you would know God's will. That's what your prayer is like, uh, that he would guide you to the right decision. But maybe after all that you think I've said, I'm going to say that that's wrong. Well, I'm not actually. But I think we should definitely pray for God's will. But maybe we should just change what we pray. If God's will is for us to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus, maybe that's our prayer. That's where we start. So in our moments of decision or dilemma, we pray for patience, not to rush to conclusions. We pray for courage to make those difficult decisions. We pray that God's word would be illuminated for us so that we could see the principle by which to filter the decision. Now, we have to recognize, of course, that God does at times provide extraordinary moments of clarity. He does guide definitely at times, but we also have to recognize that they are just that. They are extraordinary. Even, for example, throughout the book of Acts, we see that God does provide incredible definition for decisions that the apostles are trying to make at times. But the rest of the book, we see that the disciples and the apostles, they just make decisions based on what they know from God's word, based on what they think will make them more Christ-like, they just make decisions. God, yes, does intervene with incredible clarity at times, but that is not the way every decision is made. And so we pray. We pray to become more like Jesus as we read his word, which trains us in righteousness. And thirdly, in the pursuit of God's will and wise decisions, God has placed us in a community here your brothers and sisters in Christ who can help to guide you based on their knowledge of you, their experience of the world, their understanding of biblical principles. See, in essence, actually, the community in some ways embodies the other two because it is so much richer and it is so much more encouraging when we read God's word and study God's word together as well as individually. It's so encouraging for us when we gather together to pray for one another and share our burdens See, God designed us for support. He designed us to correct one another when we see each other do something wrong. But he designed us to encourage one another towards godliness, towards becoming more like Jesus. So church, be there for each other. Invest in relationships here. Be honest and open in your small groups. Know that we are here for one another. That is one reason why we gather. A good example of this for me was when I was about to start my current role with Scripture Union, which I've been in since last January. And it sounded like a great opportunity to work with a fantastic organization. But for me personally, it also felt like a big decision. And to be honest, I was terrified. Uh, and so what I did was called in with some friends. I talked with them. They shared their wisdom, their understanding of me and how I might fit with the role and, and what biblical principles might be at play and all of that. We shared that together. Now, I didn't base my decision solely on their input. 
But it was so helpful to have that wise counsel. Based on scripture, embedded in prayer, we do life together. And so God knows that we will battle through some of these decisions. So he's given us himself, displayed in the word, communing with him in prayer, and he's given us one another, all the while asking us and calling us to be faithful followers of Jesus. And as we draw to a close this morning, let me ruin the end of de Young's book by uh, reading out the very final paragraph of the final chapter. Um, so apologies if you're going to read it. And do go and read it, by the way. It is a fantastic book. But this is how de Young finishes his book. So the end of the matter is this. Live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourself. Be holy. Love Jesus. And as you do these things, do whatever else you like. With whomever you like, wherever you like, and you'll be walking in the will of God. Now that might sound flippant, but I, I see where he's coming from. See, the, the will of God is not to be treated like some kind of emergency helpline when we need to make a decision. Nor is it to be used as an excuse for inactivity when we need to make a difficult choice. The will of God may not provide us with a specific answer to the specific question that we're asking because the will of God is both bigger and more personal than that. We seek his kingdom and his righteousness. We meditate on his word. We commune with him in prayer. We sharpen one another as we do community and life together. And all of that leads us to the will of God, which is for each one of us here to become more like Jesus. And let us never forget that as individually as we become more like Jesus, collectively as a body we become more like Jesus, then we are extending Jesus' kingdom right in front of us. That will inevitably and undoubtedly have an impact on the community of the world around us that is watching, that is looking for hope, for sense of purpose, for joy, for peace. That is kingdom. So as we live this out, as we become more like Jesus, we display the kingdom and people are drawn to it. Not because we're brilliant, but because God is great. We serve a great king in a fantastic kingdom. And as we become more like Jesus, individually and together, people will be drawn to him through us. And isn't that really what it's all about? Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us clarity in your word. I thank you that we have the opportunity to talk to you in prayer. I thank you, Father, for my brothers and sisters here and around the world who can sharpen us, sharpen one another. And Lord, I wanna pray for those in here and beyond who are struggling with decisions, who don't know what to do. Father, I thank you that you know and that you meet them in their need. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us principles to base our decisions on. So God, as we, as we wrestle with these decisions, as we long to know your will for our lives, Father, would you help us to always keep in mind that your will is that we become more like Jesus. So as we wrestle, would you help us 
to meditate on your word. As we wrestle, would you help us to pray that we would become more like him? As we wrestle, would you help us to sharpen one another and be there for each other? And Lord, we recognize that, that yes, this is good for us, but as we live kingdom values, Father, I thank you that your kingdom is then extended. And God, we pray that we would be faithful followers of yours. So help us, God, to continue to wrestle. Father, if anything that I have said is not of you, would you let it drop? But Father, help us as we leave here to continue to be spurred on to greater things as we become more like your son. In your glorious and beautiful name we pray, amen.